Well, I'm going to start with a question here. It's that the question is, what is Paul or the Bible's view of the human being as to their essence? What lies behind the foundation of our being? So when Paul here, as we've read through this passage, declares that we've been baptized to Christ and baptized into his death, when he states that we have been buried with Christ so that we may walk in newness of life, when he says that we have been united together or planted together with Christ in the likeness of his death so that we also might be in the likeness of his resurrection, when he says that our old man has been crucified and that we have died to sin and that we are free from sin, when he commands us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive unto Christ, we could ask this question. Who is the we that Paul is addressing? What is it that Paul is considering in his mind? Who is it that Paul thinks is before him as he says these things? This is somewhat of a philosophical consideration, but it's more than a philosophical consideration. I want you to see that this is a very important question. I hope that you'll see that the answer to this question will become an exceedingly practical thing for yourself and for me. We'll have to apply this not only this week, but we'll apply it, and Paul's going to apply this in the messages and, and the points that he's going to make following this at the end of chapter 6 and throughout chapter 7 as well. But the question here is, who is this we? What is, again, Paul or the Bible's view of the human being as to their essence? Here's the answer to that question straight off, and we'll make it our first observation here. We are essentially spiritual beings. We are essentially spiritual beings. In our passage, God is speaking to the locus or central aspect of your identity. He's not merely addressing you as material bodies. He is not focusing upon your identity or what constructs you as a human being on the basis of the formulation of your cells and your brain functions and the acquisition of the unique DNA that you've inherited from your ancestors, nor is Paul addressing you or approaching you as material entities that are just conditioned by the outward environmental influences and pressures that come upon your life. By the way, that's primarily how this world addresses you. When this world wants to solve your problems, when it wants to inspire you, when it wants to motivate you, when it wants to lead you, when it wants to direct you or redirect you or bring its self-help and help you get your feet underneath you so you can turn a new leaf in life or whatever it is it wants to do. The world basically addresses the issues of your life based on either what are the outward external forces that are coming against your material nature, your material being and giving shape to how you exercise yourself, the nurture that you receive, the environmental influences, or it will look to the chemistry you're made of or the biology you're made of and it'll try to figure out the unique possession of attributes you have because of what you've inherited. So either way, they're looking to these external environmental influences that basically make you who you are, and that's how they pitch things through to you and try to sell things to you and direct you, or they appeal to urges or impulses that rise up within you, and that's who you are, and that's what makes you who you are. And as they try to unravel the mystery of human nature, that's the two starting points they start with. Nurture or nature, right? Either case, the fact is that they are assuming that the essential element of yourself is that you're essentially a material being who's either shaped by the conditions of external forces or shaped by the pressure of inward genetics and chemistry. But in these verses, as we look at this and we understand Paul's perspective and the biblical perspective on what makes us human beings, you see here that that's not what's being addressed. What's being addressed here that is 
being claimed as centrally you, who you are, is you're not being approached as a material being, a material entity who is just being brought to bear some new external pressure or trying to be able to feed and generate and change the dynamic of your physical being from within. You're being addressed as spirit above everything else. When God made you, he took you and formed man out of clay, and that clay is your body, and it's not unimportant, but then God breathed into that clay his own breath, and you became a living spirit, and it was in the breath of God breathing spiritual life into you that you and we blossomed into full humanity. We've said it over and over again, and I'll say it one more time. I'll say it more than one more time, but I'll say it again today, that we are not bodies with spirits. We're spirits with bodies. We just read in our scripture reading from Philippians, and go back there again, Philippians chapter 1. Let me focus in on verses 21 through 24. Paul is in prison at this time, and he's acknowledging that the church is praying that he would be released from prison, and he's also acknowledging that even in his imprisonment, God is sovereignly working to further the gospel, and he's rejoicing in these things. But Paul is struggling with a desire, which is he's facing the possibility that he might be executed. They might put him to death for his faith in Jesus Christ, and he's finding this an actually positive outcome. This is a good thing. Paul says, for me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Now listen, when you die physically, your body and your spirit separate from one another. That's what physical death is. And Paul is saying, physical death for me would be a positive thing. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. All right, let's just consider that. On its face, Paul understands that he is something more than just a body. Actually, he understands that he's something other than a body, that he can dispose of his body and his spirit will go to be with Christ. And that's better for him. And so he speaks of himself detached from his physical being or body. Here's a kind of a cryptic passage. It's in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 5. And we don't exactly know what it means. But Paul is making an argument of the kind of person he should boast in. Paul is, in a sense, talking about himself. But he says, look, I don't want to brag about myself. Listen, if I were going to boast in some experience that a person had, let me tell you about an experience that I might boast in. He says this in verses 2 through 5. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. Such a one I'll boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Whatever we can make of the passage, whether in the body or out of the body, was a man who had this tremendous vision and this encounter in the highest of heavens, in which he had exposed to him mysteries that he couldn't even utter and explain. But there's the point here. There's this idea that we are a spirit before we're flesh. We are spirits with bodies, not bodies with spirits. And it's the spiritual man, the spirit and man, that the Bible is addressing. The fact is that as little children, I think we kind of know these things. A little child is 
full of energy. They're full of just physical power and energy. And yet at the same time, a little child has no problem stepping into the mystical world. We call it their imagination. But when I was a little child, I could think of myself and imagine myself and I could cast myself back in time and I might be an Indian along some bluffs rushing down upon buffalo to go on a buffalo hunt. Or I might be walking along the walls of China, defending China from mongrels. It didn't matter. My mind could go all kinds of directions and I could put myself back into history. Then I even had these thoughts that would come to my mind. I would think how lucky I was, that was the idea, how fortunate I was that I, I had been born to parents and born in America. I would imagine what my life would have been and how much different my life would have been if I had been born in China. And I didn't want to be born in China because I was aware, at least at dinner time, that kids in China didn't eat very well. They didn't have a lot of food. The, that I should eat all of the food on my plate because I should think of those children in China. And so I remember thinking I was so glad that I had been born to the parents I was born in and not born in China. But you see, that's kind of an interesting thing. Almost all of you have those kinds of memories. And it tells you from the time you were young, you had an idea or notion of yourself that went beyond your body. You thought of yourself and your potential and your existence and reality outside of the time period you were in, and you thought of yourself outside of the geographical space you were in, and you were able in that sense as a young child, and we call it a child's imagination, but you're able to drift in and out from all the physical activity you're in and then slip into these wonderful mystical spiritual thoughts in which you could go to bed at night and pray and think of God watching over you and protecting you. And I think of the, some of the prayers I prayed. I prayed that God would put an invisible shield around my house to protect my house every night. I would lay myself down literally into his arms and hands and know that he was protecting me and watching over me and I didn't have a difficulty in making that transition from all the physical activity in my life to that sense of this deep, profound, childlike faith, mystical, spiritual expression that would reach out and claim God. You know, as we get older, what happens is, as, as we're little children, we kind of live closer to the Spirit. As we get older, we just learn how to develop the mundane of just living closer to the flesh. And we just trace along the energies and life of our flesh. Little children seem to be a little bit more free of those things. Maybe it's not just that they have great imaginations. Maybe they're just a little more close in their innocency in that time, a little more close to the spirit that God made them to be. But this is what Paul has told us, and this is who God is addressing here. Second observation here is because we're essentially spiritual beings, our essential need is spiritual. The old man that we are, we're told, has died. And that old spirit that was in us, that was governing us, that spirit that was wed to sin and was given to expressing himself or herself in the appetites of the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, describes the nature of that old spirit or old man that was in you, that he was dead in trespasses and sins. That means he was spiritually in his sins separated from God and that he was given to following the course of this world and that he was under and subject to the domain and rule of the prince of the power of the air and that he was following the spirit that was at work in the children of disobedience. In other words, this old man, this spirit that was once you, was, it was guiding your bodies while in spiritual communion with the spirits of this age and the spirits that are opposed to God and the spirits that encourage disobedience and an independence from God. If you accept that humans are essentially spiritual beings 
and you see that this is their essence, then you also begin to understand what is at the foundation of their problems. Whatever are the contributing factors of the flesh, however you have been physically or emotionally conditioned and programmed as material beings, I'm not saying that's inconsequential. Your primary problem and your primary needs are spiritual. And the great spiritual need of your life above everything else is you need a new spirit. You need to be a new creature in Christ. You need to be a new man. And that's what God is proposing. And Paul says here that God has done for the person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. So when a person is born again, that old man, that old spirit that presided over their bodies and lived sunk into the passions and appetites of their bodies dies in Christ. And then Christ, in a sense, disentangles that spirit and death from all that sin that it's enmeshed in and cleanses it and purifies it and raises it up as a new creation. And they're a new creation of Jesus Christ. Where they're in, no longer now in fellowship with and in communion with the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. But now they're in communion and fellowship with God and with the spirit and with the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings that person to fellowship with Jesus Christ so that now they're realizing his abiding presence in their inmost being. And that's what it means to be born again. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the we that Paul is addressing. Here, Paul is addressing the born-again believer in chapter 6 and chapter 7 who has been transformed. And you see this, he's not merely speaking to him as a physical being. He's not merely addressing him as a material being that is just subject to somehow developing the right environment around himself or developing the right patterns of behavior to recondition and reprogram the material substance of who he is. But he's addressing him as someone who is spirit above everything else. He's a new spiritual creation in Jesus Christ. Here's the third observation. The spirit is that faculty in which humans commune with spirit. The spirit is that faculty in which humans commune with spirit. So if you look at the passage again, you'll notice that Paul is speaking of this new spiritual creation, of these persons who have been born again and he speaks of them in a new relationship with Christ. They are baptized into Christ. They've died with Christ. They are united or planted with Christ. They live in newness of life to live with Christ and be alive to God. And here is this other aspect of this new regenerate spiritual life they have. It's the life of the new man is a life in communion with the Spirit of God. They're in fellowship with and in communion with God's Spirit, with God the Father, God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 is a key passage, and we'll, we'll look at it a little more closely in just a moment. But speaking to the born-again believer, Paul puts it this way. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. And there you have it. There is the essence of or the expression of that individual who has been born again and become a new spiritual being through Jesus Christ, now in that new spirit, he is in communion and fellowship with the spirit of the holy God. On the other hand, the unsaved person, the unborn, unregenerate person, is a spiritual being as well, but he doesn't have fellowship with the spirit of God. Instead, they are separated from God by their sins, and they are in fellowship with the spirit of this world. We have not received, he said, the spirit of this world. We've received the spirit that is from God. So you see, we're essentially spiritual beings. And as such, we're made for fellowship with spirit. Our spirits are that part of us that has been breathed into us by God at creation. 
and with our spirits, we were made to commune with Him. So here's a fourth observation to build on this idea, and it's this. Listen, it means that our spirits are not ever meant to be alone. Our spirits are never meant to be alone. They are not faculties unto themselves. They are meant to be in communion with spirit. Spirit to spirit. So it seems to me when you're reading the scriptures and you see the story of any man throughout the Bible, and if you were even to and then project out of that and look at any man throughout history in any time or any place, that he will never be alone. He's never by himself. He may be spiritually separated from God because of his sins, but his separation from God only introduces him to a new master and a new spiritual relationship, but he's not without a relationship. Bob Dylan figured this out when he wrote the song, You May Serve the Devil or You May Serve the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Every time I say it, I want to sing it like he sings it, but I won't embarrass myself. By way of analogy, the Bible says you're basically either wed in your spirits to God or you're wed in your spirits to the spirit of this world and of this age and the spirit that rules and the children of disobedience. And if you go on to Romans chapter 6 and read further, you'll see that you're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. You, you see, that's just an either or. You're going to be in relationship with something. You're going to be in connection with one spirit or the other spirit. It is foolhardy to think that you will ever be spiritually independent. A young man or a young woman who decides they want to stride out into the world by themselves and live independent of what they've been taught or been urged to do as they've been raised up in a Christian home to seek Christ, know Christ, follow Christ, obey Christ, live and surrender Him. They, they want to go their own way. They want to figure their own thing. They want to live in independence from the trail their parents have set for them. All I can say to you is they won't go out of your home alone. You won't be by yourself. If you will not tie yourself to Jesus, if you will not bind yourself to Him, another spirit will bind itself to you. You can't live independent. You won't. You don't have it. You don't exist that way. You weren't made for that. You were made for communion with Spirit. The Spirit was made for communing with Spirit, and if you don't hold communion with the Holy Spirit, you will be communing, whether you know it or not, with that which is unholy. You will. It's just how it will work out. This truth is expressed in the words that the Lord Jesus said when he was squaring off against the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Now, here were men who were considered to be tremendously moral men. They were paragons in their society, moral, ethical individuals. And as the Lord Jesus confronts them, he tells them that God is not their father, that they don't have a relationship with God as their father. If God were your father, you would love me, he says to them. And then he goes on to tell them in John 8, 44 this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, they didn't like that, but here's the demarcation between the old man and the new man. The spiritual impulses of the old man and the unregenerate person is to suppress the truth and is to deny God his true worship and is to set yourself at the center and is to live in deception and in self-deception. And this is because the unsaved individual has received to themselves or herself the spirit of this world, not the spirit that is of God. It's just the way it is. You are going to be in communion with one spirit or the other. Actually, I wrote this far in my message early Monday morning in Kathmandu. And after I'd written it, I got a contact from Pastor Tej, the pastor I was working with. He came to the hotel and he wanted to take me to a World Heritage Site, which was right by my hotel. This heritage site is the temple dedicated to Shiva. 
I'd noticed that there was smoke gathering just off from where my hotel was all day long. All day long you'd see smoke coming up from that place. Well, it's a crematoria. It's where people are burned and, and their bodies are cremated. There in Nepal, if a person dies, the very next day they take them to the temple of Shiva to be burned. And so he, he took me on these grounds. There was this massive temple. There's a river that flows to the temple. We were on the one side of the hill looking down the hill into in the temple grounds, looking at the river that flows through it and then looking across the way at the temple. And there you could see they had lined up the bodies and they were providing different rites to them, washing them, bathing them. They were like slabs of stone that angled off towards the river and they'd lay the body in those slabs of stone and bathe them. And then, then after they did that, they'd have a priest come and sprinkle water over them and say certain prayers over them. And then just down the way were ricks of wood the size of a large couch and they would lay the bodies on those ricks of wood and they would incinerate them. And then when they were done, push the ashes off in the river. So that was going on on the side of the river I was on, was a series of a long procession of little massive stone temples. There were passageways into them. They were about the size of this platform on, maybe about twice as big as this platform. Massive stone temples, just a little pagodas, you might say, but made of thick stone. And there would be two little entryways within them and they were dark, but if you looked inside, you could see that there were these idols in the middle of them that basically were these grotesque, filthy idols to human fertility. Inside each one of these, a multitude of them, would be people that would be gathered inside of them, families or a couple that were burning incense and offering sacrifices inside them, seeking for benefit and blessing from the god Shiva. The god Shiva is both a destroyer and a sustainer, He's a god whose second wife died, and in his rage, he brought destruction over humanity, and yet they come and pray that God would give them a good wife and give them health. He couldn't do it for himself, but apparently they come to him. There were gurus there that were selling. The other thing I found out is that you can't sell marijuana in Nepal. It's against the law, but these gurus sell it on this temple grounds. And so people were used, coming on the grounds also to smoke marijuana, but the, a lot of Westerners. And they were back up in these caves, living in these caves that were off from where they were burning these bodies and where these other people were engaged in this, 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 this unseemly worship. And there in these caves, basically you'd see these Westerners pop out every once in a while. The pastor said, yeah, these guys basically come here to smoke marijuana. If you will not commune with the Spirit of the Holy God, you will commune the Spirit. You'll indulge yourself and engage yourself and be connected with the spirit that perverts and disrupts and makes things unholy and defiled and even celebrates right under your nose death 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. That's what you saw. That was what was going on there in that place. It's just illustrating these things we're talking about. Look at Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read to you 9 through 16. Here's the promise for the believer. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, 
not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that they may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Did you see here a distinction is being made? The unregenerate person has the spirit of this world. They are blinded in their minds. They don't know and can't comprehend the spiritual realities of Christ or of God. These things are foolishness to them. The spirit of this age is informing them and whispering into them lies that give room to sin and to death. Yet on the other hand, the regenerate person communes in his spirit with the spirit of God. They are spiritual in the purest sense of the word. They have the mind of Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ? If you've been born again and you're a Christian, you do. I do. I have the mind of Christ. I have the spirit of the living God living in me, communing with my regenerate spirit, a spirit that has been made righteous in the righteousness of my Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a fifth observation for you. The Holy Spirit lives within us in our new hearts or the construction or in communion with a new spirit that has been made holy and made pure for meeting and communing with him. The Bible says of God that he is a pure eyes and the look upon sin, that he dwells in the unapproachable light of his own holiness, and yet it also said he dwells in the humble and contrite heart of the transformed believer. And this is how pure we are in spirit with Christ. If you've been born again, you have a direct relationship with the Spirit of the Holy God. He dwells in you and He communes with you. You have this intimate relationship with Him. Paul puts it this way. I think this is wonderful. This is how pure the heart and regenerate spirit of a born-again person is. The Bible says of the believer that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And here's the inference. There is nothing keeping you who have been born again from direct communion with the Spirit of the living God. Once you leave this earthly temple, there's no intermediate course you have to go through. There's no further refining that has to take place. There's no need for some kind of spiritual adjustment. You have been and you are ready for immediate contact with God in His glorious presence. Not your body, not your body. Your body's going to be buried a corruptible body and raised an incorruptible body, but your spirit's incorruptible now because you've received the spirit of the living God. He's made you a new creation where you abide with Him and know Him and walk with Him. And Your spirit is in Christ and it's communion with Christ and you're living in Christ and you're receiving the spirit of God and the spirit of Jesus Christ and you are perfectly ready for the glory that is coming one day in heaven. Here's another passage to consider along this line. Romans 8.30 puts it this way. Paul writes this in Romans 8.30. Speaking of the progress of your salvation, it says, Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see that? Let me read it to you again. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified, made righteous, declared righteous. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Here, 
The Christian's glorification is not put into the future, it's put into the past. Look at your bodies, it doesn't appear that way. It doesn't look like that's the case yet, it isn't. He hasn't glorified your bodies, and so God is not speaking here of your bodies. He's looking at the spirit of the new man that he's created you in. And he's saying, I predestined that man to be mine. I called that man to be mine. I justified that man and made that man righteous. And I glorified him. God has created in you a glorified spirit even now. So you might walk with him, know him, and be with him. And he might be in you. You might have this intimate relationship of spirit to spirit now. The world doesn't have it. But because God has done this for you, you have received the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of the world. This is significant and this is important. I'm going to make a quick transition here. and I'm just going to set this up. We'll have to talk about this next week. But the question is, how come it doesn't always feel like that? This sounds like a person who's standing in front of the mirror making affirmations that's actually not reflected in what they're looking at in the mirror. You know, <laughs> The fact is, I struggle with doubt. I struggle with impatience. I struggle in my moments of weakness with resentment or bitterness or sin or temptations. How can it be said that I have this glorified spirit and I have this deep intimate relationship with God when I see that I still do things that are wrong and I disappoint myself and my behavior doesn't always rise to the occasion? And Well, here's the sixth observation. Temptation and sin... Don't reside in your spirit. Reside in your bodies. God has dealt with the old man and he's put the old man to death. Verse 6 says this, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's happened. That the body of sin may be done away with. And the word there might be the body of sin may be nullified. The body of sin is still active. Something still has to happen to the body of sin. It's carrying within it the contagion and the disease and the struggles and the temptations. And as a result, it's all right to understand that there are outward influences that can swage the body in one direction or the other direction. So you have to deal with what is the outward environment of your life and what you're nurturing yourself with. And as a result, it means that there are temperamental things that you have roiling within your own DNA that can catch up with you and get the best of you. And you can exhibit patterns of behavior that you genetically inherited positively from your parents and negatively from your parents and that's within you as well and pressure with you and that's taking place so you don't ignore those things they're there that's in you that's got to be dealt with and addressed the old sinful self that was so wed to sin and united with sin and so communing with the spirit of the age is done away with he's gone and you've received this new spirit that is wonderfully wonderfully united to Christ and communing with Christ and is a new creature in Christ, enjoys fellowship with Christ, but it still resides in a fallen body, susceptible to the contagion and roiling of sin. That's why you still struggle with sin. But now let me give you, at the end of it, and I've just covered a lot of ground that we'll have to cover next week, but let me make one application to you. It's this. Allow me one application of everything they said. Yes, your body has a role in your issues. Yes, the nature and the external influences on your body are important. You need to make sure, for example, that you're around and with the right kinds of people. And yes, the physical element of your body can have you. It's a good idea to get good rest. Don't do what I did in the last 10 days and pull three all-nighters over a course of 10 days. It's not good for you. It wears you down. You might find yourself becoming grumpy. 
and things like that. So this is a reality, but let me just say this. When addressing the expressions of sin in your body, don't start there. Start with something more foundational and central and essential to yourself. Start with a spirit who is in relationship with the spirit of the Holy God. Elevate your life and your understanding of your life to this great truth and begin to address the physical and material forces in your life that might press you into sin and to compromise. Address them first by identifying yourself and knowing yourself as a spirit in communion with the spirit of God. If you are, if you are in relationship and start there. If you do, what will happen is you'll start from the high point of life. You'll start from the high ground of this life in Christ and there you'll come down upon the issues of your body and the struggles you have with your body and you'll command them from the authority and the benefit of that life you have in Christ. If you try to just try to muster your resources to arrange your life and the challenges you face by your own effort and self-effort, you just begin with flesh and you'll end with flesh. And you'll struggle in the flesh all your life. Start here. Start in the life of the Spirit. But let me just indicate one of the areas where our flesh is revealed more places than other places. In marriage, right? We get married and the wife demonstrates or is very good at pointing out when you're in the flesh, right? And of course, then you start developing a skill to try to identify when she's in the flesh. You've got to counter this. And anyhow, you live in the flesh and what the Bible says in Scripture is in Ephesians chapter 5, it commands that the wife is to submit herself to the husband. And the husband is to love the wife. In fact, prior to that, it, it says that the husband is it says submitting to one another in love. There is this mutual submission. Hard to do when you're living in the flesh. A struggle to somehow live and cause your body to bow and surrender to the other person to yield your will and your attitudes and your behavior to the benefit of the other person. But that's what we're commanded to do. But you know what it says before it says, submitting yourself to one another in love? Before it says, wives, submit to your husbands and husbands, love your wives. It says, don't be drunk with wine, which is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's in the fullness of the Spirit that you come down upon the regulation of your flesh to direct your life and how you should live. And that's what God plans. The Christian life is to be lived out of the full communion we have as spiritual beings above everything else. Living in communion with the Spirit of God. Bowing before and knowing the outpouring of His life. Influencing, guiding, directing, imbibing all of Himself to ourselves. And in the Spirit, living in that fullness and communion with Him. Then we come down upon these exercises where we learn to bow our bodies to one another in submission. It's not so hard then. It can be done then. It's actually then how it's lived. So, if you're going to live your life, if you're going to deal with the challenges before you in the flesh, start in the Spirit. Start with what you are essentially and build upon that foundation. The other application very quickly is don't waste your essential self by living in the impulses of your flesh. Step into the higher life of communing with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. Praying without ceasing is not some drudging command. It's an invitation to a wonderful privilege and duty. 
always in the Spirit, communing with Him. Let's do that more and more. Well, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, may the ending of the message not be too abrupt. May it just come before a door that's swung open, an invitation that we might see before us to not live encased in our bodies, not live somehow seeking the remedies of the flesh, but even now to live in the reality of the truth that through Jesus Christ we're seated in heavenly places, that we're communing with Him and that He's in us and we're in Him. Oh God, to believe and know it, that I'm right with you. I've got a new man. I'm in communion with the living God who loves me and claims me as his own. And I cannot be nearer to him in spirit than I am now through Jesus Christ. That he's nearer to me, you're nearer to me than my very breath. Will God receive you and believe you and nurture that understanding? Live in that reality. And then in that reality, in that truth, apply it to the paces of life that are all around me, the challenges that I face, that we face, so that life on earth here can be an expression of the glory that we have with you there. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth, you kindred into our world, you died for our sins, you rose from the grave, you did all this, dear God, to bring to us this new life. As we partake of the meal that's before us, a communion meal, may we remind ourselves that through Jesus we commune with the living God. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.